0: Printed in your bulletin, chapter four, verses one through thirty-one. We're going to focus on one through seventeen today. Don't worry, don't worry. Um, Verses eighteen through twenty-six, we will come back to when we get to the Passover in Exodus chapter twelve. So, don't leave here this morning thinking, "Look, he skipped that." No, we're going to come back to it. It's a a picture, a type of the Passover. So we'll come back and visit it. But this morning, I want us to focus on chapter four, verses one through 17, which I will read now. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and an in Aaron's word, Exodus chapter four, verses one through 17. Then Moses answered, but behold, They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be his God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, Remains forever. Let's pray. God, we come to you again in prayer, and we come asking that you would now bless the preaching of your word, that by the work of your spirit, you would move in our hearts to grant us spiritual understanding. You've given us your word, you've preserved your word for us, and we thank you for that. But we confess that we need help to understand it. God, I need your help to teach it. So would you grant us that help today? By your spirit, would you move in our hearts, teaching us and training us, correcting us, rebuking us, encouraging us, sustaining us, reminding us of who we are in the Lord Jesus, reminding us of your grace. Father, help us in this time. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, shortly after she was born in the year 1820 in Putnam County, New York, Fanny, Francis, also called Fanny, Fanny Crosby developed a, a serious and potentially lethal illness. She was Uh, scheduled to go see her doctor who just so happened to be out of town. And so there was a man standing in for the doctor who really wasn't a doctor. He was just pretending to be a doctor. Well, the parents didn't know that. They trusted him. So they took Fanny to see this doctor. And he prescribed a concoction to rub on her eyes. A concoction made of hot mustard and some other things. And they did it. They rubbed this concoction on this little baby's eyes. And by God's grace, the infection left. She recovered. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, she lost her sight. She was never able to see again. A few months later, Fanny's father died. Her mother went to work as a maid far off and she was left under the care of her Christian grandmother. As Fanny got older, it became apparent to everyone, two things, Fanny was extremely bright and two, she was really in love with her savior. She was really in love with Jesus. She wrote her first poem when she was eight years old and in her lifetime, maybe some of you know this, She went on to write almost 9,000 hymns. 9,000. Some of them you know, I'll name a few. Blessed Assurance. I won't sing them. Jesus, keep me near the cross. To God be the glory. And of course, the one we just heard, all the way, my Savior leads me. An encounter that Fanny had with a pastor later in her life reveals God's amazing work in her life and her attitude toward her disability. This pastor said to her, it's really a pity. It's really a pity that you've been blind all your life. You know how she responded? Well, sir, I'm happy for it. It's a fortunate thing. For it means that the first thing that my eyes will ever see is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in all his glory in heaven. And then she went on to recite that poem that she wrote when she was eight years old. And I'll read it for you, it's short. Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To so weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot and I won't. Out of an 8-year-old's mouth. We can all agree, at least I think we can, that it takes a real special dose of grace to face life's difficulties with the attitude of Fanny Crosby. In fact, most of us, especially if you're like me, find more in common with Moses and his response to God's work in his life than we do with Fanny Crosby and God's work in hers. In our text this morning, Moses is still there at the burning bush. He's meeting with God there in the Midian deserts. If you remember, he's been called by God to go back to Egypt and to lead the people out and into the promised land of Canaan. But Moses has questions, questions we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Do you remember them? The first one was, well, who am I, God? Who am I, God? And remember his second question? We looked at it last week. Who are you, God? Yeah, who are you, God? Now this week, Moses moves from questions to objections. From questions to objections. You see, Moses, the failed prince. Moses, the murderous fugitive. Moses, the lowly shepherd, has objections. Think about this. He's standing in the presence of the holy, the creator, the God of the universe, Moses is fully aware of his own sinful failings. He's wrestling with his own insufficiencies and his own insecurities. And so he has objections, wouldn't you? He has three objections, to be precise, that are given to us here. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these objections together. And these three objections are going to make up our outline. So let's look at his first one. Moses' first objection is found in verses one through nine. And it's summed up in these words. They will not believe me or listen to me. His first objection, they will not believe me or listen to me. Understandably, Moses is feeling insecure about returning to Egypt. Not only is he going to face Pharaoh the most powerful man in the world. But he has to face the people. He has to face his own people. People he probably feel like that he's failed, right? Think about this. It's been 40 years since his last contact with the enslaved Hebrew people, with his brothers and sisters. Would they even remember him? 40 years later, would they remember him? And if they did, Would they recall his shameful exit from among them? Would anyone accept him as a leader, given his sketchy past? And if they had forgotten about him or his past, right? Like, okay, good, they don't know who I am, they don't remember me. Think about this one. Would they believe an out-of-town shepherd who just so happens to show up claiming this? I met God in the desert he was a flame in a bush and the bush didn't burn up and he talked to me and he told me to come and lead you out. I mean, you'd believe that, right? Certainly. Moses is probably wondering, these people are gonna think I'm out of my mind. So he objects. They will not believe me or listen to me. He even goes as far as to say, They're going to say that you didn't appear to me. God, however, counters Moses' insecurity, and he does it through a series of visible demonstrations of his power. God makes a promise to Moses. He promises to authenticate Moses' call and Moses' ministry through three signs and wonders. He doesn't negotiate with Moses, right? He just says, no, this is what I'm gonna do, Moses. I got your back. This is what I'm gonna do. So he gives him three signs and wonders, and they're listed in verses two through nine. And listen, they're more than just miracles, These are more than just miracles. They are actually direct attacks upon the very belief systems of the Egyptians. And we're going to see this as we get into the plagues later. God is going to war against the false gods of the Egyptians. So these three miracles, these three signs and wonders, are more than just miracles in and of themselves, they're direct attacks upon the very belief system of the Egyptians. The first miracle is turning a staff into a snake. Do you notice how Moses responded to that one? You ever wonder why he came back? I don't know how you react to snakes, but most of us run, right? Let us know when it's all clear, right? Notice he runs, what a scary thing, right? What a scary thing, he takes the staff, puts it down, it becomes a snake. Precisely, it becomes a cobra. The cobra was an important symbol in Egypt. The cobra was to Egypt like the bald eagle is to America, right? It's a a symbol of power. It means something. So important that the crown that Pharaoh wore had a cobra on it. So by turning an ordinary staff into a snake, into a cobra, God is sending the not-so-subtle message... To the people, that he is more powerful than Pharaoh. God is sovereign over even Egypt. God is sovereign over the king of Egypt. The second miracle, Moses' hand being made leprous, also deals a blow to worldly power. Leprosy was a kind of a catch-all term for painful and deadly diseases of the skin and leprosy was rampant in Egypt during this time. By causing this disease to appear and disappear at will, God was once again proclaiming his power, his sovereignty, not only over Pharaoh, over the rulers of the land, but God is also sovereign even over disease and plague as well. Pharaoh himself could not End leprosy. Only God has the power over all things. Third, third, Moses takes some of the water when he says he's told that when he takes some of the water from the Nile and pours it on the dry ground, what will happen? It'll turn to blood. This is another attack against the powers of Egypt, particularly against Egypt's many gods. Three in particular. Num, Hopi, and Osiris, they were all gods connected to the Nile. They gave the Nile, which was even a manifestation of the gods, power, right? The Nile was power and life to all the people of Egypt. And God is saying, I can take even that and turn it to blood because these gods of yours are impotent. They have no power. They are unable to sustain life. God is the true giver and true sustainer of life as the sovereign over all things. Moses is saying, God, they're not gonna believe me. They're not gonna listen to me. And God says, wait a minute. Who's sending you? Under whose banner are you going? So God gives him a promise. These signs and wonders are given to him so that his security won't be in himself. So that Moses' security, right, would be in God. He would have great security that the people would not only receive him and listen to him, which, you know, they actually do at the end of chapter four there. How does it end? They bowed their heads and worshiped. Okay, that they would not only receive, now we know it gets harder after that, right? (laughs) People are gonna groan, we'll get to that. But at first they receive him, but God gives him this for security. But Moses needs something more because he's not going there just to have a powwow with the people. He's gotta go and tell Pharaoh that they're gonna leave. He's gotta let his people go. And what did God tell him last week? What did we see? It's God's hand he's gonna stretch out and deliver his people. Moses has the security now that God's not only gonna have the people listen to him, but God's gonna do what he's promised to do. God's gonna bring his people out of Egypt. God does here with Moses what God continues to do throughout the entire Bible, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of the old, throughout the apostles in the New Testament, even in the very earthly life of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. God endorses, God puts his full endorsement on the ministry of his chosen servants. He secures the fulfillment of his promises, how? With signs and wonders, which God has done throughout the Bible. So he does with Moses. They will believe you because I am with you and I will do these things to prove that it is I who sends you. So, Moses can lay aside his insecurities and he can rest in the security of God's power to do everything that God has promised to do. Done deal, right? I mean, most of us would be like, okay, God, I believe you. I'm ready to go. Probably not, right? Let's be honest. We're a lot more like Moses. He's got more than insecurities to deal with, he has insufficiencies to deal with as well. This brings us to his second objection. Second, it's found in verses 10 through 12, and it's summarized in these words. He says, I am not eloquent. Or teachers might get upset with me. I don't speak good. I am not eloquent, is what he says. Now, this objection is not really out there kind of objection. It's an in here Kind of objection. It's immensely personal. And it's probably the most relatable. Not not that we all struggle with the same thing that Moses does, but each of us are acutely aware of our own insufficiencies, are we not? If there's any weakness, if there's any infirmity, any shortcoming, whether they're seen or even known by anyone else, we certainly know them. Do you know your weaknesses? Do you know those things inside that would hold you back? Of course you do. You know the old saying, no one knows me as well as I do. So here's Moses, standing before the one who knows all things, even his heart. For Moses, his insufficiency is related to his speech. In one way, for those of us living here in this time, this objection is kind of curious, right? Right? Perhaps you remember Stephen's sermon back in Acts chapter 7. We looked at it a few weeks ago there in 722. You don't have to turn there, but you can look uh, later. I'll read it for you. Stephen says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And Stephen also says that he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Back when he was in Egypt. So it's kind of curious, right? Right? So why does Moses then say that he's not eloquent? He says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. There have been many attempts to uncover exactly what Moses is speaking about here. Some have supposed that he has a a speech impediment. Others have said that he was a, a stutterer or a stammerer. Others have, you know, just said that maybe he's lost the ability to converse in the Egyptian language. He's more concerned about standing in the court of Pharaoh, you know, where these these magicians and these counselors that stood before Pharaoh were very eloquent. They gave very good speeches. Maybe he's comparing himself to them. Some say he's just being polite. <laughs> oh, God, who am I to do that? Not, we never do that, do we? Oh, who am I to do that? We don't really know. We don't, we don't know what the problem is. But here's what the, the text says. It says it's a heavy mouth and a heavy tongue. Oh, that clears it up. I mean, that, that's what the Hebrew says. It's a heavy mouth and a heavy tongue. That doesn't, we don't know. We don't know exactly what it is. And however we reconcile his own words with Stephen's later words about him, uh, whatever the problem is, the point is that Moses, standing here at the burning bush, he feels something, and his feelings are real. Right? We need to validate how we feel and bring them to the Lord. And that's what he does. God, this is how I feel. He feels insufficient. I can't do this. I can't speak to the people. I can't speak in front of Pharaoh in the court. And I love God's response. God's response that follows is one that all of us should cherish. All of us, no matter what. Look again at verses 11 and 12. I want to read it again. It's so important. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, imperative, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I love that. I love how God is telling him, I made you that way, Moses. Whatever it is, God's saying, I made you that way. I don't make mistakes, Moses. I'll be with your mouth, Moses, I'll teach you what to speak, Moses. That should scream to us. It should scream to us about the value of life. Every life is valuable, no matter the abilities or the lack thereof. God is able to work in, he's able to work through, he's even able to work around them for his good purposes and his glory. God doesn't make mistakes. All life is valuable. How dare Moses think that his sufficiency resides within himself and within his own abilities? How dare he think more highly of himself than the God who created him? The other thing we must notice here, and this is important too, is that God isn't denying the reality of Moses' insufficiency. He doesn't tell him, I oh, just forget about it. He doesn't say, well, you gotta work harder at it, Moses. Work harder at it. You can do it. You just gotta be stronger. Here's a book. He doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he calls Moses to a deeper trust. He calls Moses to a deeper trust in him to be all that he isn't in and of himself. Trust me, Moses. I've got this. I made you. I'll do this. I like how Pastor Philip Ryken summarizes God's word to Moses here. This is what he says. I don't need an orator, Moses. I need a reporter. I don't need an orator. I need a reporter. Go and report to the people what I say. Go and tell them. But apparently, even that is not enough for Moses. And this is clear in his third objection, which is found in verses 13 through 17. And it's summed up in these words, not me. Please send someone else. Please send someone else. Kind of breaks your heart, doesn't it? But I love how real it is. I love the Bible. Does that surprise any of you? I love the Bible. I love biographies and even autobiographies. And you know how they paint everyone to just be perfect, right? Some of them, of course, will bring about faults and that, but... And if you read historical ones of heroes and that, we really just want to point out how great and awesome they were. It's okay. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it's real. It's real. It just tells us Moses is messed up. Moses is struggling. He's a sinner. I need to hear that, right? Because I identify with Moses. (laughs) If I'm there at the bush, I might be just like him. Nope, send someone else, please. I love how the Bible speaks to us right where we are with words that we need to hear. And we see it here loud and clear. After all that God has said and done, Moses is still turned inward. He's still focused on himself, so much so that he seems to be forgetting who God is. How do I know that? It's subtle, but it's important. Notice how Moses addresses God in verse 13. My Lord, look how Lord is spelled. Capital L and then lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D. He uses the common title for Lord here, Adonai. But how had God just revealed himself to Moses in chapter three? He revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, right? Right? We talked last week about what that meant, that God is personal, he's eternal, he's always present, he's always keeping his promises, he's all-powerful. Moses had asked God for his name. God had given it to him, but Moses calls him by the normal, regular name, which is still a good name to call God. Okay, like I said, it's subtle. Notice how he's forgetting who God is and how God has revealed himself to him. Moses doesn't address him as Yahweh. And then verse 14 the anger of Yahweh. The anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. We've seen God's anger, particularly in Genesis chapter 6. This is the first time in Scripture that we see these words God's anger was kindled against someone. See, God knows who he is. And thankfully, Thankfully, what Moses writes about him later is true here. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, right? And abounding in steadfast love. Though God's anger is kindled here, his steadfast love abounds. We'll learn more about God's tremendous provision here uh, as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus, but don't miss what he does as a, a demonstration of his love as he's so prone to do for us in our weaknesses and in our doubts and in our objections. What does he do? He provides Moses a helper. He gives him a helper. He calls his brother Aaron to be his helper, to be his mouthpiece, which as you know, if you know this story, is a blessing and sometimes not so much a blessing. But God meets us where we need him the most in our weaknesses, and he gives us a helper. Did he not do that in our greatest weakness, in our sin, and send us our Savior, Jesus Christ? God meets him here. He sends his brother to him to be his mouthpiece, to be his helper. And so as God speaks to the prophet so that the prophet can declare God's word to the people, so Moses will speak to Aaron, and Aaron will declare that word to the people. You can't stop God. You can't stop God's plan. Moses is gonna go and he's gonna speak there. It's gonna happen and it happens. In verse 15, God reiterates his promise to be with Moses, to be with his mouth and with Aaron's mouth, to teach them both what to do. I love that. I'll be with you. I'm not gonna leave you. Furthermore, in verse 17, don't miss this, God gives to Moses a staff, a staff with which he will perform the signs that God has shown him. It's a tangible sign, something he can hold in his hand. There's debate, is it the same staff he had before? Is it new? He gives him a staff. Just keep that in mind. He gives him this. It's a, a gift to remind him in those lonely moments that he's not alone To remind him in those powerless moments that power doesn't reside in him, but that power resides in God and God will be the powerful one for him. That's a gift. So Moses is ready, right? I love how the the story continues. Moses goes, he's ready, he's ready for action, he's fully equipped. He's fully prepared to go to Egypt. Think about this. I mean, what else could be done, right? He knows the wilderness of Midian. He knows it, he's, he's walked around it for 40 years. He knows it. He knows Mount Sinai. God said, you're gonna come back here and worship me here again. So he knows like he's going to Egypt where he grew up. He's gonna come back through the wilderness and he's gonna be there at Mount Sinai. He has the staff to perform the miracles. He's got his brother to be with him as a mouthpiece. And God has commissioned him. He doesn't have to wrestle with the external and internal calling. God met him and said, you, you're the one, you go. There's no more objections. Moses only has two things left to do. Trust and obey. Trust and obey and obey and as Moses goes the Lord Yahweh will be with him and the words that Fanny Crosby wrote which we heard sung earlier which are printed there in the bulletin before you though they were written many years later than Moses these words ring true for Moses they actually ring true for us listen again all the way my savior leads me What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide all the way my savior leads me? Cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Brothers and sisters, the woman who wrote that Fanny Crosby wasn't a saint. She was in the sense that she's a Christian. but Fanny Crosby was a sinner. Surely there were times when she faced her life and her calling, just as Moses did. But the good news for her, and for you, and for me, the good news, is that we don't have to be our own champions. We don't have to be our own sufficiency. We don't have to be our own security. We don't have those things innate in ourselves. Not enough to see us through to the other side. Try as hard as you may. You cannot be your own all in all. You can't. You simply can't. Instead, you have to find yourself satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ, period, full stop, I guess. You have to find yourself satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ. No matter what your calling is, and no matter what your objections to that calling is, you must rest you have to rest in grace, rest in peace, rest in mercy, rest in the presence of Jesus Christ. Your life is valuable. Do you know that? Your life is valuable. Especially when the young people to hear me. Your life has meaning. You are valuable. Your life has meaning. Moms and dads, everyone else. Your life is valuable. You have meaning. Everyone. God made you. You are precious in his sight. Your abilities, your lack of abilities, they're by design. God doesn't make mistakes. But listen, you cannot and you will not Embrace, you cannot and you will not comprehend the fullness of your calling until you resign yourself to the place where Moses now finds himself at the end of our text this morning. That's a really simple invitation. Trust and obey. God, I belong to you. My life belongs to you. I trust you. I'll obey you. You know, I thought a lot about what this means for Moses, you know, we talk about Moses, we talk about the disciples, like, oh, if I'd have been in the presence of Jesus, I would, I, no way I would have done that. Those guys, I can't believe they doubted him. Look at that. He, he caused the whole sea to stop. He fed thousands. Ah, I would. Stop. Just stop. You realize you have something greater than Moses had? Jesus actually said that it's for your benefit that I go away. You'll do greater works because you have God living inside of you. If you're a Christian, God dwells in your heart by his spirit. He's with you. He tabernacles. He dwells in you. His presence is there. You don't have to wander off into the wilderness and go up to some mountain or look for some bush that's not burning up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. How do I do that? Seek the Lord with all your heart. Call out to him in prayer. He hears. He's there. He's always with you. Though you may be weak, he is indeed strong. Though you may feel lonely, he is indeed present. Though you may feel lost. Hear this, you are found because Christ is with you. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?